Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. On this week's New Statesman podcast... We discuss Boris Johnson's latest Brexit speech. We talk about Northern Ireland. And the art of the political interview. Right, so Boris Johnson... Not Boris. Not Boris. ...is back in the news with a big speech about the Liberal case for Brexit. What did you think? Well, the first thing I thought, and I know I shouldn't be surprised by this point, is why is the Foreign Secretary doing a speech about Brexit? You know, (laughs) it's not really his area. And I think that he's been sort of freelancing in that role for so long. It just shows that nothing's really changed, that he's still able to make these set piece speeches about Brexit and what it means for Britain rather than the rest of the world. And I know it is tenuously related to the rest of the world because he's saying that there's sort of a global liberal case for it. But I think it's just still sort of him posturing and on manoeuvres. And I just find it depressing that we're still in this stage where he's able to just step up and say whatever he wants about it that makes him look better for having been a Brexiteer. And remember, he wasn't really one in the first place. That it just makes me think nothing's changed and that you shouldn't listen to a word that he says. Yeah. So I was tasked with listening to it to write, you know, a a sort of on the whistle take on it. And yeah, I mean, depressingly, in another example of everything that is wrong with society, you and I both went to the same university as Boris Johnson. And it gave me really unwanted flashbacks to terrible tutorials with posh people who'd been to places like Eton, like Boris, doing this kind of like, I haven't done the reading. But what if we decide the essay question is actually about what if the history of Martin Luther is actually about communism? Or what if it's actually about, you know, the march of of European liberalism? Yeah, it's a bit like that trick that you do where you define the terms of the question, but how you want to define them so that you can talk about something that you want to talk about, which is what I mean about him sort of freelancing. He's decided that Brexit means what I call, and this is no offence to the spectator writers, but what I called the spectator Brexit, which was that box with a butterfly with a Union Jack on it coming out. Yeah, That Brexit is a take that people have. And I'm sure Boris Johnson is more ideologically of that sort of thinking than the sort of more anti-immigration populist view. But it's a very minority. It's sort of like the Westminster Brexit, isn't it? It's it's the Yeah, it's the Oxford tutorial Brexit. It, it's a theory that people have and ideologically they find it appealing, but it's not why people voted for this and it's not what they're going to get out of it. I think what I find galling about it is, one, as you say, like, why is he still allowed to do this? It's like, why isn't a man who is over 50, why is he still 
still allowed to do the equivalent of the tutorial flannel when you haven't done the reading. And I think the point about it being the Westminster Brexit is exactly right. Every analysis of why people who voted to leave did, and obviously it was a multi-causal referendum, 17 million people voted with a lot of different reasons, is that there were two big drivers. One was the promise of more cash for the NHS. The other was an end to free movement, right? There is not a like right-wing liberal mandate to be found. And also there's not an electoral majority to be won on there either. Right? It does not exist either as a policy case because it conflicts with our government's objectives as far as the Irish border goes. You cannot have these great free trade agreements where you diverge from the EU, but you don't have infrastructure on the border mm-hmm. and people don't want to vote for it, right? This myth that you can have a Singapore-style economy in the United yeah. Kingdom, the problem is that requires you convincing the rest of the South that they should be like the rest of the countries around Singapore, which actually no one wants to vote for. Yeah, and it's incredibly cynical because while Boris Johnson can come out and say that this is his vision for Brexit now and try and make it sound more appealing to Remainers, that's not what he was arguing for during the campaign. They were using him and and, and politicians like him who have this perspective were using voters' concerns more simple things like wanting more money for the NHS and wanting fewer immigrants who they were perceiving to be taking their jobs and, and you know, sponging off the state. They were using those myths to try and pursue the goal that they want, whether or not it was for these ideological purposes, I don't know. But, but you know, it, either way, it was sort of lying to voters to get something out of this that, that they're never going to get. Yeah, it's just beyond disingenuous to turn around and go, oh, but actually, look, here's a liberal case for this thing. I mean, also... What I think is odd about it is obviously the Conservatives and however Brexit works out, right, Brexit has thus far been an almost unmitigated disaster for the Conservative Party, right? Because a large chunk of people in electorally useful places who voted for them in 2015 did not vote for them in 2017 and may not vote for them again ever. They traded that for a bunch of useless votes, effectively, because first past the post means that there is no prize for almost winning Ashfield. Um <laughs> And they have this situation now where they're kind of trying to pretend almost to themselves and what they need to do is go, oh, no, don't you get it? Brexit is actually really liberal. But the kind of people who voted to stay in the EU or to leave the EU for liberal or socialist or conservative or whatever ideological Mm. cause you care to name reason can be convinced by 45 minutes of, well, Mr. Speaker, if I define my terms like this is nonsense. The Remainers the Conservatives should be worrying about, and actually the Brexiteers they should be worrying about, are the people who are like, okay, this is happening. I might not be into it, but I broadly accept it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. What is your answer on whether or not my partner can stay here, whether or not my university can continue to employ this many academics, whether or not my farm can still have... Exactly. They should be talking about those practicalities now. If people who they want to win over who didn't vote for Brexit are thinking, okay, it's going to happen, so tell me what's how it's going to happen. They should be talking about that now rather than the theory of Brexit, which really they should have talked about before the referendum. And also the way that Boris Johnson makes this speech really jars with what we're actually seeing from the, from the Conservative Party because it's more the European research group, the more right-wing Brexiteers who are sort of controlling Theresa May's direction or at least her rhetoric on this than the Liberal Tories who are still happy with leaving the European Union. I mean, I was speaking to a Conservative MP recently who said that he's spoken to those of the more Michael Gove, Boris Johnson perspective of Brexit who are really angry that people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who were not of, of the same ilk, are dominating the sort of Brexit direction. 
The other thing I think is interesting is the weird thing is there are two things that we can say for as close to certain as you can ever be will happen in the next five years. The first is that the Article 50 process will end. And the second is that the Conservatives will try to win re-election. Now, you can criticise Labour's Brexit policy for largely being one geared towards winning the next election, right? But at least I understand what Labour wants out of the Brexit process. They would like to be the government. Whereas not only does the government now not seem to have Brexit objectives as far as the Brexit talks go, I really do not understand what their... We talk a lot about oh, a Tory Brexit, a Labour Brexit, jobs first Brexit, blah. But mm. actually, weirdly, there is no Tory Brexit, right? There is no one in the Conservative Party, it feels, who has sat down and gone, at the last election, we got 42% of the vote. We either want to get 48% and beat Labour that way, or we want to find a way that we get 40%, but Labour's vote goes down to 30%. And therefore, our Brexit strategy will be X, right? It's weird because Labour solely seems to see Brexit as an electoral issue. Yeah. The Conservatives don't seem to have clocked that that is an issue at all. Uh, yeah, I do think that the prevailing view among Conservative MPs, including quite sensible ones, is when we've got Brexit over with, post-Brexit, after Brexit, it's never going to end. Brexit is a new era. It's a new reality. So I think loads of them want to see Brexit over and done with which again is it's impossible and that's the way that they're looking at it rather than actually having a vision for it yeah. and like you say labor has got mainly a sort of quite pragmatic electoral vision for it but it it, it doesn't it doesn't have i don't hear from labor mp's or oh, once this is over we'll do this and it's odd because you said that and i suddenly realized yes i get that all the time with tory mp's yeah. as well too is that labor mp's understand that Brexit is not going to be finished. Exactly. It, yeah, it is, as you say, a new reality that will be the overwhelming governance challenge of the next 30 years or however long we're out for. There are maybe three Tory MPs I've talked to who have kind of even acknowledged, you know, kind of, you know, someone said to me, you know, I voted Remain because I did not want to spend my career talking about Europe, and yeah, now I I've will. Heard that too, yeah. Um, yeah. But apart from that group, even a lot of the pro-European Conservatives go oh when brexit is over and just like no it, it that's not gonna happen and they just seem to have no understanding of the fact that they are at some point going to have to you know win an election after brexit well not after brexit as the case may be yeah a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So you went down to concert. Up, but yes, I did. Everywhere is down from London. <laughs> Everywhere is down from London. Please send your hate mail to <laughs> stephen.bush at... Um, you went up to a concert in yes. Durham. Yeah, to go and interview Laura Pidcock, who is known mainly as a rising star of the Labour Party. She was only elected last year, and now she's shadow Labour minister, which we, she was promoted to in January. And actually, Stephen, I think you were the first person to write that there are a few whispers behind the scenes that she could be a potential successor to Jeremy Corbyn. So that's the reason why I went to go and interview her. And she didn't disappoint. She was really interesting. Mainly, I thought about the use of the word class in political dialogue. So she was talking about her own working class background, but she was very, very careful to say, I really hate the exoticization of working class people that you get in some 
political rhetoric. And, you know, she didn't say it in so many words, but she was, I'm sure, talking about the left because there's less of that sort of solidarity in the struggle kind of language on the right. And she also said, you know, this isn't only about working class. This is about talking about class to the middle classes as well, because they can also feel precarious in the class that they perhaps risen to. I've put that in inverted commas for for people who aren't watching this podcast. She kind of, I think, wants a more modern conversation about social justice, I think. Another thing that she said, which has got more attention than that, was that the Labour Party has never actually asked its members directly. It's only really been through outside polling um, what they think about the the party's Brexit policy, which is just a pro-Brexit policy. Um, And she said, you know, because she cares so much about the the empowerment of the membership, she would have to go with what they decided. And from what all of us know about the membership is that over 80% of them are in favour of staying in the single market and customs union at least. Yeah. So the thing I find slightly amusing about Labour's internal argument is it does Mm. feel like if you cover Labour long enough, every possible internal position is held by every available faction. So (laughs) Labour's pro-Europeans, who know they aren't all Blairites, but they are mostly not drawn from factions who have been that into member-led policymaking, have suddenly decided they are into consultative ballots on policy. Yeah, it's true. The leader's office, which was quite into balloting members on the (laughs) Syria vote and in general throughout the last 30 years, has kind of said, oh, maybe we're not into that anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I do think the problem for pro-Europeans, though, is they were kind of right the first time. I I, uh, haven't sort of sat down and properly met Laura Pidcock yet myself. I thought she came across very well in your interview. But I just think, to me, it is just lunacy, this idea that either membership of the Single Market and Customs Union is good for the United Kingdom and good for left-wing policy aims, or it's not. Yeah, it it cannot become so by a vote of Labour Party members, right? The economic calculation does not change. It's a bit like when people go like, "Oh, but don't you understand? Labour has a big problem with immigration in its, you know, in its post-industrial heartland." And it's like, well, yes, I, I understand that. However, ultimately, it doesn't matter how angry people who vote Labour might be about immigration. Labour still can't say it would lower it and then achieve any of its policy aims, right? I just don't get it as a a way of thinking about politics. Yeah, so basically the the criticism would be she's putting what members believe over any sort of principle or or like policy uh, rationale. And so that's what a few people have been saying. I think that's actually maybe a bit unfair because... You know, we'd just been talking about how much she started out as a Labour activist. She was one of those members who supported, you know, reselection of MPs. And she doesn't want to change those kind of principles that she had as an activist now that she's an MP. And she thinks actually, I mean, she was making the left wing case for leaving the European Union, which is no surprise because she's on Labour's front bench and that is their policy. But I'm sure that she would argue that there is also a way of making staying in the EU or, or softening Brexit, making that work for her constituents via a Labour government. So her argument was being in the European Union or the status quo had not helped her constituents in the northeast because they were under a Tory government, whereas Labour's manifesto would change that, whether we were in the EU or not. On the broader subject of interviews, you do most of our interviews. You've did another one with Johnny Mercer earlier in the week. You've yeah. got Richard Bergen coming down the track. Another uh, do you have, Labour rising star. Do you have any more people who we should puff on the podcast? Um, those are my only political interviews um, this week. And you've obviously interviewed people outside of the world of politics as well. I kind of wanted to talk to you about the art of a good interview because Andrew Marr, this week on The Marr Show, got into, you know, 
some people got a bit angry about it online. The Independent did a write-up of it in which he thought he was off air and he put his uh, his thumb up at Penny Morden, the Conservative Secretary of State for International Development, and went, that was very good. Right. Now, I always say that at the end of uh, an interview. I think most people thank the person they've interviewed afterwards. Yeah, I don't think I've ever not said thank you. They're giving you their time and their thoughts. And even if they are a politician and promoting themselves, if you've done a good enough interview, then you probably do have something to thank them for because they've said something interesting. I do also think the kind of the fact that some people have taken it as a sign of a of kind of collusion, while I think it's wrong to do so, I also think it is it is entirely correct to say that most of the media has it in for the Labour Party and the left more broadly, and that the BBC does tend to take a steer from most of the print coverage, which does tilt slightly to the right. Yeah. Um, so it's on those with well, I kind of I'm I keep wanting to do a column or something on it, but I can't quite find a peg. What I think of as things which are incidentally correct. So those two things. So. It can be fine for Andrew Marr to give Penny Morden the thumbs up, but that doesn't make it not true that the BBC is, is, you know, isn't is robust enough about not just following the Daily Mail headlines yeah, that morning. I, so, I mean, this morning on the Today programme, for example, John Humphreys started kind of interviewing Yvette Cooper and going, oh, well, you know, what what about what's Labour's official policy on it? So, well, yeah. Yvette Cooper, I don't know if you've noticed John Humphreys, <laughs> is, is not exactly, shall we say, ideologically in sympathy with the current... Labour leadership and is a select committee chair. There is simply no way that Nikki Morgan would be invited on and then told, yeah, but you want to leave the customs union, don't you? Because she doesn't. And we would all think that was not a useful That's use true, of listeners' time. That's true, because no one thinks that she represents yeah. the Conservative Party line of um, Brexit. Yeah. But I think, so I think kind of one of those things are just like, yes, I think it was just like a moment of ordinary politeness and what anyone would do. When I've been on the Mar show, uh, the first time in particular, I was quite nervous. And mm, afterwards, exactly. Andrew Mardi go, you know, don't worry, you were great. Right. So that definitely isn't evidence of the thing people are worried about. But I do find it a bit maddening that people pretend that the thing people are worrying about has come from nowhere. And also, we always talk about this from the perspective uh, of people who have occasionally been on a television program or who have interviewed a politician or have, or have been in that kind of setup. Whereas most normal people will look at maybe maybe would just watch that and think that's a bit weird that he gave her a thumbs up. They're supposed to be challenging them. They're not supposed to be making them feel comfortable. So I can kind of I suppose maybe we have a little bit of privilege there that we have to remember most other people don't have. And maybe it does look odd. But on the specific kind of art of the interview more broadly, you know, when you'll know you're going to sit down with Johnny Mercer, explain your process. Well, usually I think about the person that I want to interview um, quite hard. So why do I want to interview this person? What's interesting about them? What would I like them to say? What would be the most interesting thing for them to say that could get headlines? So, you know, this is about writing a story as well as sort of giving a sort of pen portrait of someone. Um, so you have to think of it from a news perspective. You know, there may be other factors like Johnny Mercer's just brought a book out that's really interesting about his childhood and life in the army. So that made me want to interview him because I could ask him about things that he'd previously not spoken about. Laura Pidcock was actually off the back of your column, Stephen, because you said that uh, she was someone who was sort of in contention for the leadership. So usually I try and think of the right reason. If you don't have a good reason for interviewing someone, usually it won't be good. That's that's what I've found. And then, yeah, and then I just sort of do as much research into literally everything they've ever said or any other interviews they've done. And I've watched them in TV interviews and sort of researched their background as much as I can. And maybe I'd ask someone who knows more about them, who I know. So maybe someone in their party who I know or another journalist maybe who knows them more than I do. 
um, sort of what do you know about them? What makes them tick? What kind of things should I ask? So that, that's the research I do. I'm sure you're quite similar. Yeah, I would say basically that's the same for me. I think kind of the the thing I find interesting is I think, and the other thing is I'm not actually sure it works on TV. Uh, one of the people who was involved in prepping Jeremy Corbyn for the Paxman debate said, well, the thing uh, you basically realize when you're preparing him is Paxman has two tricks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you work out what Jeremy should do with those two tricks, you're kind of fine. You're golden. The studio audience is a lot more scary because you don't know what they'll do. But that very combative TV style of interview, I don't think works in print because if someone on TV clams up and refuses to answer, well, that is allegedly good telly. Yeah, that's one of those sort of car crash interview type things that I'm sure very sought after in TV. Yeah, whereas if someone clams up in a print interview, then you just... (laughs) Yeah, you're screwed. Yeah. Yeah. And you're always on the back foot because, you know, you have to ask the right questions. You have to make them feel comfortable. If you don't, they can just not say anything interesting and usually they'll come out fine. So So it's actually quite difficult. But you and I have very different styles of actually interviewing when we're sitting there in the room because readers might remember, very, very loyal readers might remember that Stephen and I interviewed Andy Burnham together during the uh, Labour leadership contest um, a few years ago now. God, yeah. Three years ago. Oh gosh, where did the time go? I um, know, a more innocent time. Um, and we had a very different style, which is actually quite revealing. Because <laughs> my style is basically to effectively, with everyone I interview, is to go, so is it ever hard being quite so wonderful? <laughs> like, I'm so sorry I have to ask <laughs> this. Yeah, it's just effectively to kind of like, effectively become Uriah Heat. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I found your style a lot more kind of like, so, Andy, what is How wrong with you? How can you say you're not in the Westminster bubble? Yeah. So this is the thing. I, it was it was odd because I think they did both work. Yeah, yeah. looking through our transcript, I think we both got kind of... But yeah, it's odd. so why, why is your approach uh, like that? Um, I think it's just because I think you, you gauge it. So sometimes if someone's really scary, I might be a bit more apologetic and do the classic trick of some people would argue that that you're awful. What would you respond to those terrible critics? Um, So I do do that sometimes. But with someone like Andy Burnham, who's very experienced um, with media, and um, also he was running to be Labour leader, I think you can challenge them, you know, as as harshly as as you like. I realise because I always tend to approach it like a conversation where you're going to get to know something. So I kind of always try and effectively... So I always try and have, like, the colour questions first, partly because you know that if you have, like, a question of, like you know, come on, you can't possibly still think Wenger should stay, right? They've answered that, and that means and whatever happens, you've got, you can do some colour answers about the kind of, oh, you know, you've always felt this about X. And then hopefully they've kind of got to the practice of talking by the time you do the like. Yeah, in a, in a former job, I had an editor who said, you start with the honey and then you end with the vinegar. So that, you know, even if they're really pissed off by the horrible questions you're asking at the end you already have enough and they're not going to be shooing you out of out of the house or out of their office and um, but then you had a wonderful interview with bernard donahue yeah. where you had lunch with him and i think that lunch setup really worked for the for the outcome of the interview didn't it so i really like a lunch setting for two reasons one i am horrendous at not talking and the <laughs> And so I have two tactics. One is to clean my glass, respectively, to tell myself that I can't say anything until I've done like a full clean of both of both uh, lenses. And then the other is obviously if you're eating, uh, you can't be talking. And they, I think, also always feel obligated to perform a bit more. Although the 
Donahue interview, which was brilliant, his diaries, which are out, are brilliant, was in some ways a classic example of if you interview someone interesting, uh, you don't actually do it. I mean, he kind of, we sat down before we'd ordered and he was just like, um, and I had originally planned to do a kind of historical looking mm. back on um, on his time advising Harold Wilson and Jim Callahan, But instead it was kind of a, you know, kind of quite... Um, a belligerent interview about the state of the Labour Party. <laughs> yeah, he was just like, exactly. And you know, he was like, I, I, I really like the new statesman. I was, oh, thank you. You can go on. And I'll sit down. And it's just like, yeah, it's really good. I like this. And he said, but let me tell you this: if Jeremy Corbyn succeeds in his <laughs> his task of destroying the <laughs> Labour Party, that will not be good for the for the new statesman. And I just thought, okay, so it turns out it's going to be a different interview. And then I was just <laughs> like, okay. And he was just like, let me tell you another more. And it was something I literally don't. And then after maybe about thirty minutes of you know really sort of you know, interesting, honestly expressed, uh, um, amusing argument for his brand of Labour politics. After about half an hour of, of this, he was just like, do you have anything else you want to ask me? And that really floored me because I kind of was just like, to be honest, I mean, I don't think I'm going to get any better quotes than this, but um, could you tell me about what it was like to work for Harold Wilson? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I do remember that. That worked really well. I, I think, you know, you're, you're doing yourself down a bit because if you're going to have lunch with someone, you do have to make them feel even more um comfortable because it's could be a really awkward setup if you don't like the person you're having lunch with well yeah when you were at total politics you had like a lunch with feature didn't you where you'd yeah. like go to like a local well a restaurant in westminster yeah and they'd give us the meal for free if we kind of wrote what restaurant we were eating in and it was on the back page every month and even now if you search my name there are pictures of me at like 22 looking absolutely terrified <laughs> across the table from like elderly Tory peers but yeah I used to hate um doing lunch interviews so I might have another go at them now that you've you've have a second them. bite yeah and now it's time for a section we like to call you ask us indeed a good question this week which is so in phase one the government you know said look there were, we've agreed that there will not be physical infrastructure or a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, and there were, and they have said to their own party and to the DUP, there will not be additional border checks in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, given those two promises, there is only one way to fulfil that, which is to have a close relationship with you know, some kind of customs union and effectively participation in most of the single market and a, a very large degree of regulatory alignment. Yet we are still covering an argument between the Conservatives as if this hasn't already been conceded. This is what our questioner wants to know. I have to admit that I, like them, am similarly confused. Can you help me? I don't have an answer to this unless Theresa May and, you know, that whole phase one of the Brexit negotiations doesn't actually mean anything, which if you do remember, David Davis, the Brexit secretary did kind of hint at as soon as the phase one was over, he said, oh, this is not legally binding. And then he had to sort of backtrack. So unless they're lying or unless they're fudging and they're going to change what they said, then there is going to be very little divergence between Northern Ireland, the rest of the UK and the EU. Yeah. So we are going to have to be in the customs union. We are going to have to have at least de facto membership of the single market. I don't understand how it can be anything else. And you stick to those promises. I do think that, you know, the withdrawal agreement is legally binding, right? That That yeah. is just plain as the news. I'm not sure if did the British government simply not understand that it was legally binding. Is Theresa May actually playing a blinder where she like very gently leads the Conservative Party to a point where she goes, surprise, 
we're in this very close relationship with the EU. Well, I really hope that she's doing that and that she hopes that most sort of of the rabid Brexiteers care little enough about Northern Ireland to not have noticed. Because it wasn't really a conversation during the referendum campaign and immediately afterwards when everyone was saying, you know, how on earth are we going to navigate this? No one had really thought about it. So maybe she's still relying on the fact that they're still not thinking about it properly. Well, I am sort of continually astonished at how little most of the political class, particularly on the right in British politics, cares about Northern Ireland. I mean, you know, that guy who hit one of the protesters uh, outside Jacob Rees-Mogg, Daniel Hannan did a quote tweet of it going, how is this happening? You know, this kind of political violence has never happened in Britain. And it's just like, um, <laughs> let me tell you about this little thing called the Troubles, Dan. Uh, yeah, like, and it's kind of one thing to, well, no wonder the IRA stuff just didn't land on Labour. Because if you don't care about something yourself, it's quite hard to convince other people and they should. Yeah, that's a good point. I've never linked the two. But maybe it also tells us a lot about what the voting public in England, Wales and Scotland oh, yeah. feel about it as well. I mean, this this is the thing is that it's a bit sad that this is the case. But ultimately, if there was a hard border between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, about eight people in the rest of the United Kingdom would, would care. Yeah. The number of times, you know, when I used to, you know, have to manage people in a shop where people would be astonished at this kind of idea and like, oh, you know, but the Northern Irish people have the same money as us, don't they use the euro? This was like a regular <laughs> conversation yeah. I had to have with members of staff, right? You'd kind of have this thing where if you ended up with that kind of conversation where you'd have kind of other customers going, oh, no, that, you know, no, no, it's not. Northern Ireland has different money. And it's like, no, it's, it's not a different country. <laughs> Yeah, and actually that's something I would never, I want to say, I'd never blame voters for because I do think that you have to sort of take your cue from politicians or those who are sort of... Yeah, I mean, I think in general, like the point of representative democracy is, you know, people have busy lives. Yeah. It is perfectly reasonable. It's why when people go, oh, you know, I don't, people, you know, kind of whenever people go like, oh, you know, yeah, I I think I wrote a piece about this around the election, right? A lot of people did this kind of like, oh, you know, you're, you're voting for a party or an idea, not a person. And you're just like, well... No one knew on June 2017 that the Grenfell Tower fire would happen mm. or that the Finsbury Park attack would happen. What you, you're you kind of voting for is the idea that a person will respond to those uh, challenges well and as a unifying leader. To be frank, I don't think anyone could really claim Theresa May did respond to either of those challenges well. So I think ultimately you, you are always voting for a person, partly because you're voting for someone who you assume will pay attention to maintaining peace in Northern Ireland so you don't have to. Yeah, exactly. So you can't really blame the voters for not caring. And like you say, there was a spectacular lack of conversation about Northern Ireland before Brexit and even now, really, because she has fudged it. So I suppose it's going to be a test of whether she thinks that she's pulling the wool over her own backbencher's eyes or she's pulling the wool over Northern Ireland's eyes. I mean, I don't know. Someone is going to be betrayed by whatever the outcome of this is. And I really hope that it's <laughs> that it's going to be you know, the few backbenchers who have been dictating her her sort of conversation about Brexit ever since the beginning. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed by Creative Commons. Helen is away writing a book, which I'm sure that she would want me to plug. I don't know the title, but, you know, the author will be Helen Lewis. So, you know, 
put that in your Amazon wish list and then buy it from a bookshop because Amazon are evil. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.